0: It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny.
1: I'm Philip Overby.
0: Today's guest is the author of over a dozen short stories appearing in Clark's World, Lightspeed, Analog, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and more. His debut epic geopolitical fantasy novel, The Traitor Baru Karmarant, was published in September by Tor Books, of which past guest Cameron Hurley describes as smart, brutal, gut-wrenching, get ready to have your heart ripped out through your throat, highly recommended. He's also worked for Bungie Studios' smash video game Destiny, writing lore and flavor text, with a background in social psychology and neuroscience, game design, chocolate, and machete and skyping in today from new york city the grim tidings podcast welcomes mr seth dickinson to the show seth thank you for hanging out sir
2: thank you so much for having me
0: We're delighted to get you on the program today uh, a lot of folks are talking about the trader baru the trader baru car- cormorant i'm going to say that right eventually
2: uh you discovered the greatest weakness of the book which is that nobody can pronounce <laughs> the name <laughs>
0: Well, people are digging it. I've been seeing a lot of uh, social media buzz and things about that. People are really excited about this title. You've taken world building to a a new degree, kind of a la style of Cameron Hurley, of having unique story perspectives and things like that. So I guess, first off, we'll just have you tell us a little bit about the novel and maybe what gave you a seed for the idea for the story.
2: Yeah, definitely. So uh, before you, before I talk about my book and how exciting it is and how you should buy it, I just wanted to say something about world building, which is that, You know, there's a lot of argument about, is world building a good thing or a bad thing? And should world building be done for its own sake? Like, uh, should you write a set of rules and let the world's geology and climate develop themselves like you're playing Sim Earth? And one thing that's always stuck with me about world building is always for the sake of the story. And you can tell because in fantasy secondary worlds, like worlds that are not Earth, there are humans. And humanity is actually really... uh, biologically curious and unlikely species. Not because we're intelligent or smart or anything like that, because we're so inbred. There was an event in our evolutionary history called the Toba Catastrophe uh, about 75,000 years ago. And it's theorized that it knocked, it was a super volcano eruption. And people suspect maybe it knocked the human population down to just a few thousand people. And all of us are descendants of that survivor group. And part of the reason that humanity is so inbred and genetically homogenous and able to, you know, have ideas like universal equality is because we're so we have so little diversity. Uh, we're all very much like each other. Even the two most different humans are probably very nearly probably more related than the two least related chimpanzees outside their social groups. And I always wonder when I read secondary world fantasy books, like what was their Toba catastrophe? How did they end up with people instead of like I don't know, lots and lots of different hominids or something like that. They didn't have this event in their, in their history. So that, I don't know. I always think that's interesting to think about with world building and how world building is about the story. So the question was like, what's my book and, and why should you buy it? Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, the Traitor Baru Cormorant is, we call it a geopolitical fantasy. We can kind of think of it as Game of Thrones meets Guns, Germs, and Steel. Maybe a little Gone Girl. And it's a story about a young woman from a conquered island. An empire rolls up and takes over her island very subtly, very cleverly, with market manipulation and indoctrination. And she decides, like you do, when you face an evil empire, the thing to do is not run away, join the rebellion and throw a spears at them, but to join their civil service, get promoted as one of their best agents and take them down from the inside. So it's a story about how Baru starts from literally nothing, just the clothes on her back. And she's, she belongs to sort of the most oppressed social caste of the entire empire and how she works her way up and what it costs her. And I was interested to write this because I'm interested in knowing how the world got to be the way it is. I want to explore the patterns of force that led us to today. uh, And I think fantasy is absolutely the best place to do that.
0: It actually started out as a short story, correct? Yeah,
2: that's right. The ending was the first thing I wrote um, and published separately. Unfortunately, that wasn't a problem for the novel because nobody really reads short stories. So uh, it was out there. And we put a spoiler warning at the top. It, it is a whole book that leads to its ending because that was
0: the first part I knew. So folks, check out the short story. It has some slight spoilers. And don't check out the short story. If you want to read the book. It is, it's literally the ending of the book. <laughs> so stay away from the short story. <laughs> don't read the short story. People. <laughs> read the book. And so you got a three book uh, deal with Tor for this series. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, technically, my editor, Marco Palmieri is a great guy. I'm really happy I ended up with him. The contract is for three geopolitical fantasy novels. So in theory, I could go nuts and, I don't know, make up some other planet. But uh, it's going to be three novels about Uh
1: What would you say geopolitical means for people that aren't familiar with that term? Mostly, people think it means boring.
0: <laughs> this.
1: It's maybe not the best marketing term.
2: Geopolitics is just the study of not even study geopolitics is the sexy, awesome, violent, um, <laughs> art of figuring out how to move your armies and your money around the world. So you can achieve total global domination. Uh, that's all it means. It's not about imagine game of Thrones where the characters involved are less concerned with, uh, very realistic, very interesting, feudal, uh, family dramas and more concerned with sort of logistics and climate and, how their crops are going to come in, stuff like that. Like they're, they're playing a board game with the world. That's what geopolitics is. It's treating the world as a huge chess match.
0: And so are you a full-time writer at this point?
2: I am, yeah. I split my time between working on my book, uh, that's most of my time, and doing some freelance work for video games. I worked for Bungie. I've done work for Marauder Interactive, who did this awesome, awesome, I love spaceship games, um, this game called House of the Dying Sun, where you're uh, on a mission to avenge your your dead
1: emperor. In a a little space fighter. That's awesome. Like, I'm pretty hardcore into video games. I guess I'm the video game guy on the show. (laughs) When I was growing up I played lots of games like X Wing and uh, TIE Fighter and those kind of Star Wars games. Were there any kind yeah, of Yeah, did you ever
2: play Free Space Two? No, I've
1: heard I've heard about that, but I never I never got around to, to playing it. I kinda transitioned more into RPGs like as I got older. But I'd love to play more of those style games. Uh, you're you're actually working on something called Blue Planet. Uh, is that an ongoing project that you're working on?
2: Yeah, it is. It's a hobby project. It's kind of fan fiction. Uh, And I've been working on it since I was in college, which is about a decade ago now. And what happened is there was a game called Free Space 2 back in the ancient era of 1999. And it was the greatest space game ever made, no question in my mind. Not just a really fun game and a good piece of game storytelling, but an actually interesting piece of science fiction, which is very rare in video games where... Usually the design principle behind the narrative is we want to let you play a cool movie. Free Space 2 really did something unique with its narrative. It was about the traditional space opera story where we go out there and we're divided amongst ourselves. And then a great enemy appears and we unite to fight them. Uh, And Free Space 2 really questioned the hubris behind that story. But nobody bought the game. It was like the last great space sim and no one bought it. So the company who made it, Volition, they now make Saints Row, just gave us the source code. So we've actually been working on and improving the game ever since... And I got involved in that community and uh, working with this amazing guy from Australia, who I know as Darius. We made, um, we made a, a series called Blue Planet and the idea was, in a very fanfiction way, to try to look at the human experience of being in one of these video games. So we do stuff like try to make you care about the enemy pilots you have to kill and uh, feel really bad about the act of killing. And really give you a sense that you're not just in a game, but in a story where your opponents are clever, calculating people who are as eager to live and as convinced they're right as you are.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of like shooters and those kind of games often the enemies are you know just uh, people to shoot, <laughs> shoot at. So yeah, I like the added layer.
2: Yeah, it's it's the Nathan Drake problem. I don't know if you ever played Uncharted, but Nathan Drake is like this adventurer, kind of an Indiana Jones type. And uh, he's very happy-go-lucky and he equips a lot. But he also kills hundreds of people. And the game doesn't really make any effort to make you feel bad for these mercenaries you're gunning down. Like, they're just sort of there. And uh, in a way, the game would be a lot more effective if you only fought five or six people. And each fight was really, like, knocked down, drag out, brutal, and psychologically difficult. Which is what they ended up doing with The Last of Us, uh, a later game they made.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that Last of Us really plays up that element of uh, each fight is kind of like uh, you could die (laughs) at any moment.
0: So you work for uh, Destiny as well. How did you land that gig of writing flavor text for that video game?
2: It is a really boring story.
0: Actually, that's not true.
2: There's a little cleverness in here. I actually got (laughs) approached um, by a headhunter who was looking for someone to write on Halo. Uh, which is under 343 industries and he said uh i should send him my cv uh, which was basically some credits working on the game modding and science fiction short stories at the time this was a couple years ago and i figured very cleverly that if i was going to get a job offer from 343 we're out in seattle i should have a rival job offer so i could play them off each other for more money so i went to Bungie's website and they were working at destiny on destiny at the time and uh they had an opening for a writer So I just sent them my CV, and uh, they called me in for an interview. I did a few writing tests and got the gig, and that's about it. So if anyone's listening and wondering, well, how do I get into game writing? My first advice would be don't. My second piece of advice would be have a resume of work on mods and, and short fiction that shows you know how to write, that shows you're not precious, that you can take direction. It's interesting because I got the job at Bungie largely because the guy who was hiring there Came out of science fiction publishing, so he knew to value the things I'd done. If they were instead hiring writers from Hollywood, um, I doubt I would have gotten the job.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, uh, I really like Destiny a lot. I uh, was playing it for a while.
2: Yeah, a lot of people do. It's it's a very cleverly designed game.
1: It's one of those games that uh, even if you're a casual player, you can you can pretty much jump right into it. But then if, and then if you're like a hardcore player, there's those elements also for you. Like the, I think it's called Iron Banner, which is really kind of brutal. Get your ass kicked all the time.
2: Trials of Osiris, the raids. (laughs) Yeah. There's a range of content. I had a lot of fun. So my job in that game was to write the grimoire, which is the sort of fiction companion that fills in the game's backstory. And to describe a lot of the weapons and armor. And that was neat. That was an interesting challenge.
1: What was your favorite uh, weapon or armor or anything you had to write for? There were a
2: lot i really loved the one that probably sticks out was this weapon called the vex
1: mythoclast
2: the vex are a faction in the game and this was when the game came out kind of the hardest weapon to get and the vex have a lot of theme about time and time manipulation they're sort of time traveling terminator robots Uh, and the flavor text itself was actually a loop like the end went back to the beginning and i like that it was a cool gimmick
0: Definitely, your career um, reflects, I think, a a, a lot of our contemporaries would be something to shoot for. You've had uh, multiple short stories published in pretty much the top notch science fiction and fantasy publications out there, including Clark's World, Lightspeed, Analog. I mean, these are top notch publications. So you kind of got into the industry by creating short stories. What is it about short fiction that uh, appealed to you to where you, that's where you kind of got your start? Part
2: of it is that there's a faster feedback loop. So You write the story, you submit it, you get your rejection. And that's a lot quicker than doing an entire novel, querying agents, not getting anyone. That can take years. Another thing is that in a short story, every single word has to do work. And I was interested in learning how to master that kind of prose style, where you're very, very purposeful and intentional about every sentence. And you inscribe sort of the themes of the whole story on the structure of individual paragraphs. So it develops kind of this fractal self-similarity It probably sounds really pretentious uh and i apologize but um in a sense that actually turned out to be a hindrance when i started working on a book because i had to learn to relax and uh stop redoing every scene until it was perfect
1: so you would say like short story if you're if you're wanting to write novels uh, starting out. I, I know a lot of people say this. Uh, you should. Some people say you should either write short stories or should write novels. You shouldn't do both. No, that's crazy stuff. <laughs> okay. But if you, if you come from a short story background, it's better to ease yourself into writing novels and not try to perfect everything as you're writing. Would you say that's true? Everybody's
2: going to have their own path. One thing I've really learned about speaking as a writer is that for any given piece of advice, you say, there's someone out there who will stand up and say that's absolutely wrong and would not work for me. And that's true. I know a lot of great novelists uh, like Catherine Valenti, for example, who started out writing novels and thought they would never write a short story and are now prolific, awesome short story writers. I know writers like Kidge Johnson, who's a master prose stylist, who sort of swim back and forth between the two, but favor short fiction. And uh, it's different for all of them. The advantage to short fiction for me is that it's easy to workshop and get critique on. It's easy to work on individual prose and structure tricks. A short story is basically an assassination. You want to get in there, drive your knife into the reader, and get out as fast as you can. Whereas a novel is more like a con, where you get to know them and sucker them in, and then deliver your payload at the end. Uh, they're very different arts.
0: And the short story for The Trader Byro Cormorant was actually your first pro sale. Is that correct? That's true.
2: Yeah, that is, to Beneath Ceaseless Skies, which is, if you really like uh, fantasy fiction, that's like, if you want to go to another world and have an adventure, Beneath Ceaseless Skies is great for that.
0: Yeah, it's a great podcast of audio fiction, so folks can definitely check that out on iTunes. Lots of great storytelling there. How many rejections did you get for your short fiction before you finally got something out there? That
2: is an awesome question. Uh, So I had been submitting on and off since I was 17. And the most important part of getting into publishing is persistence. And you will hear people say that, you know, having inside connections or having a platform like a popular YouTube channel helps. Those probably do help, but they are not necessary. You can get an agent and a New York publishing deal just by throwing bodies into the machine guns until uh, you've reached your objective. All I did was uh, write short stories and submit them over and over. And I would say about 30 rejections. What I would do, this is the advice i give anyone working on short stories, is write your story, submit it to the most prestigious market it fits at. People try to start from the bottom. Don't do that. Just go to the best, go to the second best, the one you like second most, and get rejections until you've run through all the places you would be proud to be published. Then retire the story. This is an ugly thing to say. I think it is true. There are some places... Uh, where simply in terms of pure Machiavellian prestige and how it looks on your CV, it is better to not be published than to be published in these places. Not because these places are bad or have nothing interesting to offer, but because if they're on your cover letters, it says that you were unable to sell the story to a better market. And it is, again, and in this very cynical, manipulative sense, people reading your cover letter, wondering if they should pick up your story, are more likely to be interested in an author who has no credits and has never published anything than an author with a bunch of sales to local literary magazines and fanzines.
1: Um, yeah, I'm sorry, it sounds a little cruel.
0: That's just Jones, my theory. That's great advice. That's great advice.
1: Do you think uh, starting writers tend to want that exposure... Credit ra- yes. rather. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot people of people want do that. To
2: sell something and it's a mistake. God, I, I really don't want to shit on anyone's path. <laughs> Everyone has a different trajectory. Yeah. But the advice I give my students is that if you are interested in selling short fiction as a way to build your reputation and nobody reads short fiction, except for other short fiction writers, that's not true. <laughs> there, are, there are other readers, but you should not expect to get much feedback. This can be a hard part. Um, you'll put a story out there that you worked your ass off on and you will sell it to the best market you can. And you'll get maybe two comments. So you have to do it. This is true of all writing for the joy of writing. You need to do it because you have to write this story and it expresses something in you You cannot do it because you want to get a lot of retweets or, um, I don't know, a lot of comments. And that's part of why I personally choose not to self publish because just for me, for me, this is a really incendiary topic. I don't want to put a lot of effort into doing publicity for my own work and pushing it because I know for my own personal psychology that would move the value of what I'm doing from the joy of writing to putting out product. Do you guys know the story? uh, Economists and psychologists really like this story about the old man who's sick of the kids playing in his yard. No, tell us. Oh, it's great. So there's an old man and he lives at a house with a wonderful lawn. He loves his lawn. And the only problem is, a bunch of local kids come and play on his lawn. And this old guy is very clever. And he knows these kids are having such a good time that if he goes out there and says, get off my lawn, kids, they'll just hang out on his back lawn or whatever, because they know he's not going to chase them. So he goes out there and he says, hey, kids, I love having you on my lawn. And in fact, I love it so much. I'm going to pay you all 50 cents a day to play on my lawn. And the children are like, you're going to pay us to do what we already love doing? Sure. That's awesome. And a week or two goes by and the kids are enjoying getting 50 cents a day to do what they were already doing. But then the old man totters out sadly and says, kids, I hate to do this, but times are tough and I'm going to have to cut your pay to 10 cents a day for playing on my lawn. And the kids say, well, it's not worth it anymore, Gramps. And they leave. And this is an example of uh, like... Value transference, where if you attach an external, I was a psychologist. <laughs> you can't tell. Uh, if you stick like points or some sort of gamification on something that's already intrinsically motivated, something you already love doing, your motivation can transfer from the intrinsic motive to those points. And for me, I. Learn this really the hard way. I can't write because I got to hit a deadline or because uh, I need to put out a certain number of stories a year. I have to do it because I really, really want to. And when I want to, I am insanely productive. I don't want to sound like a lazy, spoiled person who uh, has the privilege of just writing when they feel like it. It's just that in order to constantly put out work and constantly get those rejections and just keep going and going and going no matter what happens, the motive has to be because I love doing it. And that's what keeps me going, if that makes any sense at all.
1: Oh yeah, I think uh, we've heard a lot of writers say, you know, you know, don't get into writing for any other motive other than that you love writing and you want to share your stories with people. If your motive is anything other than that, then you want to be, you know, rich overnight or get a fucking yacht or something. Then it's probably not the best. That is true. Choice. It's funny. Uh, again, I'm I'm treading
2: on dangerous ground here. But people will sometimes talk suspiciously about Big Five publishers as these economic gatekeepers, sort of rich people who make a buck. The agents and the editors, they make a big buck off your work. And uh, it's important to remember that publishing is a pretty poor industry. They don't make a lot of money, not even the editors. Uh, They're doing this because they love it, too.
0: So you're involved with what's called the Alpha Workshop, is that right?
2: Yeah, I have been the past few years.
0: And that's a workshop for younger writers.
2: That's right, ages 14 to 19. I went there when I was 17, changed my life, and I have taught there the past couple of years. It takes 20 students a year, purely on the basis of your story. Uh, There's financial aid available. It's in Pittsburgh in the summer, and we've had students come from as far away as New Zealand. I think we had one from Indonesia, but she couldn't make it. It's a pretty cool place. I'm not sure what the status of the workshop is this year, but we'll start doing publicity to get applications if everything works out. Oh, and we get awesome guests. We've had people like Justine Larbalestiere, Scott Westerfeld, Timothy Zahn, Kitch Johnson, Kat Valenti, Max Gladstone, Melinda Lowe. I could go on and on. We have a ton
0: of awesome people. So that must have made a pretty big impact on you when you attended then.
2: Yes, and uh, the two things that did for me that were more important than any specific writing lesson where it gave me a critique community where I could send stories out and people would read them and tell me things I was doing badly and doing well, which is so important to me at least. To feel that your story is going out there and someone else is getting meaning from it too. It gave me a very simple flowchart for how to figure out where to send my short stories. And if anyone's interested, basically right now, as the field stands, I would say write a short story of 2,500 to... 6,000 words, make sure it's in proper manuscript format, give it a cover letter which just says, thank you for considering my 3,500 word short story, title, amazing short story, title it, dear uh, the name of the editor, full name no honorific, thank you for considering my 3,500 word short story, I am amazing, I am a artificial intelligence from the internet who produces fiction with a Markov chain generator and this is my first attempt to get published, it's all you say. (laughs) Thank you for your consideration. Send the story first to Clark's World uh, because that is the publication with the fastest response time that also gets the most awards. Then send it to Lightspeed. And uh, if you get a rejection from Clark's World, never send your story to more than one place at a time. You send it, you get the rejection. You send it to another place, and from there, there's a ladder of markets I would work down, all of which I love and all of which I'd be happy to be published in. I just go with the ones that respond fastest first. Rachel Sworsky is a great short fiction writer, did an analysis she presented at Alpha where she said basically all the top-tier science fiction and fantasy magazines, Clark's World, Lightspeed, Analog, Asimov, Strange Horizons, I guess Beneath Ceaseless Skies, I'm forgetting people who will kill me, Apex. Um, <laughs> all of them published stories about the same quality, with the exception of Clark's World, which tends to get a few more award winners. So submit your stories to those one at a time, and you've got rejections for all of them, retire it. And that's the procedure for getting short fiction published. It's that simple. So that's what Alpha taught me.
0: Good stuff.
1: So when you say retire it, do you mean that's the end of the story forever? Do you? uh, You know, Ellen Datlow told us on the show a while back. You should always cannibalize ideas from dead stories or anything you, you haven't used before is that is that still a possibility after you've retired something
2: yeah as long as it's a new story there are stories i tried to sell when i was in college that i rewrote in the last couple of years and sold but they were the words were all different if that makes any sense like hmm. i kept the idea but not the pros so yeah totally go for that if it's a good idea
1: I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the traitor Baru Kamaran as, as far as the thematic elements to it, because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, actually, on your website, you talk about the villains of the story are actually more thematic and not actually a person. Uh, You talk about gender is biology, races, destiny, and queer relationships are doomed. And these are kind of the villains of the story. How do you kind of deal with that in the story as uh, your antagonists, so to speak?
2: So the story is about
1: the traitor Baru Cormorant. It's
2: entirely her perspective. You see everything filtered through her eyes. And uh, there's a read-along on my blog where I go through, I think, the first five chapters and show how I tried to use the negative space in the story to illustrate her character too, like, what she doesn't notice. And this is kind of a stupid idea that maybe I shouldn't have tried, because readers don't really stop and say, hey, she didn't notice the kids, or she doesn't think much about friendship or family. But I hope the absence of those things is still telling. Like, the way she thinks about the world in terms of economic power and patterns of force blinds her to other things. And by collaborating with an oppressive regime in an attempt to gain power and then take it down from the inside, she runs the risk of succumbing to their narratives, which are the villains that you just mentioned. The idea of race as a biological fact that determines your destiny. The idea that non-normative relationships, so in the story, queer relationships or polyamorous relationships are intrinsically doomed, um, that the world will punish them. The idea that gender is something strongly biologically determined that alters your mental capacities baru exists in this kind of corrosive bath of constant indoctrination because the masquerade the society she works for is predicated on psychological manipulation financial expertise and these sort of machiavellian subtle ways to take over the world and she's playing a very dangerous game by trying to pretend to be one of them long enough to take them down all the tools she uses are you know the saying uh which I wish I could credit properly. I know it was a uh, black feminist woman that the master's tools can't dismantle the master's house. Well, Baru was all about the master's tools. She uses Imperial power to get her way. And a lot of the book, it's kind of like if Luke decided to overthrow the empire by going to the Imperial flight Academy, like he originally planned in star Wars, becoming a, a Navy officer, learning to use the dark side of the force and trying to take over the empire that way to make it better. That's a very, very dangerous path.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's maybe a spoiler ish. We always talk about spoilers, but, uh, there, there's a few scenes that I really enjoyed in the book where, uh, is witnessing some people being reprogrammed. So to speak, uh, there's a scene where a woman is being shown images of her husband Uh, people that look like her husband (laughs) and then getting positive reinforcement from that. And then she sees like really uh, appealing people opposite that. And then she gets negative reinforcement from that. I like the, I like that combination of the, you mentioned your psychologist. You can, you can definitely tell from like scenes like that. It's very psychological. So I really enjoy that aspect of the, the book is that, a lot of a lot of the conflicts are more psychological than than the straightforward. You know, uh, we see a lot in fantasy the war, uh, you know, straight up war between people or or you know, fighting someone or whatever. It's more of a psychological warfare, so to speak. It is, and a lot of the battle
2: is on that level and within Baru's head and her struggle to figure out where people's loyalties lie, what their games are. But I also want to assure the listener there are several large naval battles, set piece field battle. Some duels, some assassinations, some poisoning, and uh, plenty of other excitement on the more visceral level too.
1: As far as grimdark goes, uh, we're more heavily involved in that uh, aspect of fantasy. Uh, would you would you say that there are elements of what what would be called grimdark, uh, where uh, the characters are more gritty, realistic style characters and uh, there's some dark elements to the story.
2: Oh, that's a really complicated question. So I have not read enough grim dark to really speak to it with any authority. I read, uh, Richard Morgan because I loved his science fiction books or Cameron Hurley. Obviously who sometimes gets sorted with Grimdark. dark. So people sometimes talk about the masquerade in the trader, bar and Cormorant. That's the, the evil empire as being cartoonishly evil. And, uh, Everything the masquerade does is basically based on late 19th century, early 20th century America. It's stuff we did very recently. And compared to the actual colonialists who went around the world spreading economic domination, they were the ones who were cartoonishly evil. Uh, The Portuguese, when they first breached the Indian Ocean, would do things like uh, accept a bunch of hostages from like a city they were negotiating a trade deal with. And then if they got displeased, they just cut off all the hostages' heads, put them in a boat, and send the boat back to shore. And like, if you wrote that in a book, people would be like, why would anyone do such a stupid, cartoonishly villainous thing? And yet it happened all the time because in real life, people have great capacity for good and tremendous capacity to rationalize their evil because they believe they're doing the right thing. And uh, when the Portuguese, during their brutal program of uh, conquest in the Indian Ocean, did things that sound like the behavior of like a comic book villain, like they're warriors refused to use cannon because they wanted the glory of hacking the heathen to death with a sword. Like you can't write that in a book without people being like, come on, I'm tired of this stupid, like meathead behavior. I want cleverer antagonists. So almost to the extent that there are elements of grimdark, uh, which I see as being like reminding you that things are muddy and they suck. They're sort of accidental. I I wouldn't say accidental, but, uh, Yes, it's a book that's interested in the nitty gritty parts of power and where power comes from and how it's deploying in real politic. And I think people could read that as being part of Grimdark. But I actually wrote it. One big thing that inspired the entire book was Catherine Valenzi talking about where we choose to place our attention in stories like Grimdark stories. Like, uh, let's say your story has a lot of whores in it. And um, the sex workers are kind of there as decoration to show that your story is real uh, and your characters buy their services and abuse them and and move on because you know in history the author says well the sex workers had a pretty bad time but Kat argued Kat valency she's a great author that like by choosing to invest your narrative attention in your protagonists who you think are doing interesting things like. I don't know, assassinating a duke or captaining a pirate ship, and not in these sex workers. You're actually making a statement about what you think is important. And I wanted to challenge that. I wanted to say, so in this in this theoretically grimdark story, which plays by grimdark rules, what happens when we deploy someone into that story who plays by different rules, who sees things differently, who's willing to mobilize uh, systems like, uh, for example, the the priesthood in Ardwin, where a lot of the stories is said, is primarily female and has its own coded language to trade information. Uh, just like in, in China, there was a woman's language, which was used for kind of the same purpose, to pass information on what was safe and what was not. And Baru is willing to use and mobilize these systems. So we've come a long way from the question of, you know, how much Grimdark is there in the trade or cormorant? I think Grimdark is something I'm interested in interrogating. I would not call the story grimdark. I'm happy if people want to, especially if it gets them to read it. And I'm happy for people to think about the story through that light. Like, is this grimdark? Is this not? I tend to think of genres and subgenres as tags rather than exclusive categories. So a book could be both science fiction and fantasy. It could be both grimdark and anti-grimdark. A book can be many things.
0: Are you still writing short stories at this point or are are you just going to continue on with novels?
2: I do occasionally write short stories. I haven't been recently because I need to finish my book.
0: <laughs> I know a lot of uh, other novelists that we've talked to, at least, uh, they pretty much started writing novels. And since the other markets don't pay as well, then they kind of stick with their guns and what's going to make them the most money. So sticking to uh, long form prose fiction seems to be a a choice more often than not. But uh, do you, so you see yourself continuing to write short fiction?
2: Yeah. One thing about short fiction is it. It doesn't take me long, at least too long to do a short story. And you can get a reasonable payout for, just again on a crass economic level, for a short story if you spend a couple hours on it, a couple days, and sell it. And I can do that if I have the spark, like if the story just flows out of me. If it's something I have to really work at, I usually table the story, come back to it later. Like you can get a month's rent off a short story. You can't live off short fiction. Nobody does. But... You know, it's nice bar money. Mostly for me, short fiction is a place to explore new ideas. Uh, You don't have to commit to an entire novel's work. You can take one idea and sort of turn it around in the light and see what comes through it and put it out there. That, to me, is really cool. I had a fantasy short story recently that I really liked. People talk all the time about, on like the R Fantasy subreddit, about magic systems. Everyone loves magic systems. And I'm not super interested in magic systems, except as ways to incarnate problems of human power. So I had this short story recently where I was like, well, what if the things a wizard can do are limited by the laws they've internalized, like the things they believe in their heart? For example, everybody knows the sun will rise in the morning and everybody knows gravity and everybody has a vague sense of how to interact with other people on one level or another. What if your is as a wizard is constrained by these things well then it would be extremely valuable to have wizarding assets who don't know how anything works so i wrote a story where one society is kind of hanging on in this brutal defensive war by sticking their some of their children in uh, these magical cells when they're like six months old and raising them in utter darkness so they're uh, these completely broken devastated feral children but very very powerful weapons and the story is about the handler of one of these children. Grappling with the question of whether the system is right. And I didn't think I could sustain a whole novel on that because it was so dark. But a short story was the perfect place to check that out.
1: Cool. Can we find that somewhere?
2: <laughs> yes, it's Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And if you just Google the title, which is Laws of Night and Silk, you will get it.
0: Do you right. think having a snappy title for your short story is important too?
2: Yeah, and uh, it's got to be easily Googled. Someone, I think Clark's World, did a list of the most common short story titles they get. So if your story is titled, like, Monsters or The Choice, no one will ever find it on Google. So have a unique title. I really like titles. They're like little crystals of what the story
0: is about. I've heard Michael Swanwick even say that he chooses the title first before he even writes the story, and that inspires him to write an entire story just based from his title. So, huh, sometimes that's some, crazy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I used to always really like uh, Robert E. Howard's titles. He always had, like, these really cool sounding titles like the tower of the elephant or something. And you're like, Oh, cool. (laughs) That sounds pretty cool. (laughs) One thing I think is shared by good titles
2: and the dialogue of hit television show Mad Men is that when you read the title, this is not always true, but many good titles and many good lines of dialogue on hit television show Mad Men are, they feel extremely natural, but they're not what you expected. They strike you because they're a coherent phrase that evokes an image, but it's not one you would have come to yourself. I'm trying to think of some great titles I've seen, like uh, All the Light We Cannot See, or uh, The Wonderful Thing That Awaits Us All. Or, I don't know, there are very many titles, even Tower of the Elephants. There's something in there, there's some conflict, like, how can an elephant have a tower that catches at the mind?
0: Good stuff. Well, Seth Dickinson, we have come here to the conclusion of our interview talking about your novel and short fiction and writerliness and all sorts of great stuff. It's been great to have you on the show. For folks who want to track you down on social media or online, where's the best place that you would send them?
2: Uh, I would send them to my Twitter, which is at Seth J. Dickinson. That is D-I-C-K-I-N-S-O-N.
0: And they can tweet, retweet. The Monster Baru Cormorant is the next title. When's that going to be available?
2: That is a great question. I'm hoping fall 2018, maybe sooner. It's been a, a lot of work.
0: Well, we'll look forward to that. If Folks can read The Trader Baru Cormorant. Until then, great title. Be sure to check that out. And thanks again, Seth, for joining us on the show. It's been great.
2: Yeah. Hey, I just remembered my book just came out in paperback. By the time this podcast is up, oh, it should probably be
0: out in paperback. Buy it on paperback. Check it out, folks. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at Grimdark Fiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.